This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Ed Hearn. Ed Hearn, catcher for the Kansas City Royals, card number 56. All right. This should be a great one, but before we get to that, we do have some follow-up from last week's episode about Lou Whitaker. We had a great response to the Lou Whitaker episode on Facebook. This is probably the the biggest response. I think you just put the name Lou Whitaker up and, and people just start throwing hearts at it. A lot of people suggesting that Lou should be in the Hall of Fame, a, a lot of discussion around that, and surprisingly, few people disagreeing with the notion that Lou should be in the Hall of Fame. Earlier this week, I looked at my phone and saw that a new Effectively Wild podcast had showed up with a guest, Adam Dorowski. And on that Effectively Wild podcast, they talked with Adam about the results of the Hall of Fame era committees and Adam's response to that. Adam also came out with a new Building the Ballot podcast in response to the outcome of the of the Hall of Fame balloting. So big week uh, for Adam as a podcast guest and did a great job on on both of those particularly exciting to I think both Adam and I Minnie Minoso was elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame I think this is relevant to our podcast because Minnie while starting his career in the 40s also played a game in the 1980s <laughs> just an amazing career and my mom's favorite player growing up so my mom is very excited to see that he gets that well-deserved spot in the hall of fame yeah five decades of baseball uh for Minnie minoso and if it's mom's favorite player then we you can't do any better than that yes yeah, just a, a fantastic career and a white Sox legend Minnie minoso well thanks for that david and now to our card today ed hearn so why did we select ed hearn this week you know, we have a long list of recommended cards and suggested cards uh, that I have misplaced somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I I saw on Twitter, at Thomas Lee Green, posted a thread of these packs called Collector's Edge. And in this thread, he, he just said, well, this is what I got in this Collector's Edge pack. These packs promise big hits, <laughs> autographs, and rookie cards. Instead, it looks like Thomas got a bunch of junk, <laughs> a lot of 1988 tops, a lot of 1986 tops, some beautiful cards from our perspective, but maybe not from the, the, the value perspective. I tweeted that I was intrigued by this card, and I remember this Ed Hearn because he looks so tall, and I just thought, like, that is way too tall for a catcher. He looks like a kaiju like he has just smashed a city <laughs> but but i was intrigued because of the look of the card and i it was similar to jack lazorko where i said i don't know anything about ed hurd let's let's figure it out and immediately decided to call an audible and switch the topic for the week to ed hearn because there's a very good saber bio by alan Cohn, and ed hearn is interviewed in jeff perlman's the Bad Guys won about the 1986 Mets, which I think has been referenced in the Tim Tuffle episode. And in that book, there's a quote from a friend of the author who read an early draft of the book, and he said he had one complaint. Except for Ed Hearn, all these guys are... 
So that's what we have to look forward to. A nice guy. He won a World Series in 86. He was part of an interesting trade and has had some remarkable ups and downs in his retirement. Well, this should be a great one. So let's go to the front of the card of 56. My reaction immediately on seeing this card was, this man is so tall, he's broken up through the title of the card. So he's towering over these people. I know that it's just you know, perspective that the crowd is very far away, but he looks like a giant compared to them. The catchers, uh, the leg protectors, they seem far too small for him. Like he, he just happened to pick up whatever the little league team had on and coach decided he's going to play catcher for a while. There's just way too much upper leg showing in this picture. <laughs> that's, that's it. It is the, the proportions are all off. T- tons of thigh. Not that he's there's thick thigh, but there's just too much leg. Too much leg. As I said, it looks like he's crushed a small town under his feet because of this <laughs> dust that he has kicked up. It, it looks really... It's a cool action shot. He's holding a runner on base or maybe has picked up a, a ball in the dirt. Very good action shot. He's also wearing glasses. That seems uncommon for a catcher. Doesn't seem like it seem like it would be comfortable with a mask over it. And the first catcher with glasses was Clint Courtney in the 1950s, who played for the Yankees, Orioles, White Sox, Senators. A few other 1980s catchers were prominent glasses wearers, including Daryl Porter, Brian Downing, Steve Yeager. But this is an interesting look. And as a kid who played catcher in Little League and wears glasses, I think, if I remember correctly, I would just not wear glasses when I played because we were more concerned about breaking them than me having a passed ball. Matt, you talked about the people behind Ed. What is that giant barrier? So what it looks like to me is that this is a spring training field that has like a a chain link fence around with a large pad along the top of it because you can see the legs of the people who are watching the baseball. There's also a, a person in the stands in front of the stands who appears to be sitting in a wheelchair. And this, this large railing is right at their eye level. So they can't see anything, but it also just, it has this effect of these people who look smaller. I imagine them just cowering in horror at the gigantic Ed Hearn, who's unleashing fury on their town. He just appeared. He was, he was, Zapped down from, from <laughs> outer space. You can you can almost hear them going, oh no, oh no. It's Ed Hurd. It's an Ed Hurd. <laughs> well, it, it is so a, a terrifying and very exciting front of the card. Now let's go to the back of 56. Ed Hearn, height 6'3", weight 215, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Phillies in the fourth round in 1978. Born August 23rd, 1960 in Stewart, Florida, with a home in Fort Pierce, Florida. I'm glad that we are a little bit vindicated here. 6'3 is pretty tall for a catcher. I did a stat head search. There are 2,456 players listed who ever played catcher, period. 1,189 who played more than 50 games. Any guess at how many of those are taller than 6'3"? Hmm. I mean, it's got to be less than 10%, I would, I would think. I think it's very small. Of those 1,189 
catchers who played more than 50 games, only 46 of them are taller than 6'3". So that's 3.8%. The average in the 80s was around 6 foot 6'1", only eight guys taller than 6'3", who played catcher in the 80s. Tony Pena, Matt Noakes, Tom Nieto, all in that six foot six one range, ah, which really? is surprising. I, I think when we talked about Matt Noakes, we said he looked like a character from River City Ransom and was <laughs> looked like a, a short squat guy. Tony Pena as well looks like a little looks short, but maybe because he's not incredibly short, six one or six foot, he that's why he had to kick that leg out to get a lower center. Grayson Griner currently plays for the Tigers is the tallest catcher ever and he is six foot six and there's an article about Pirates catcher Jacob Stallings who is six five and he was initially pushed into pitching because of his height and scouts thought it would be a hindrance to be that tall behind the plate that he wouldn't be able to provide a low enough target for pitchers but I did notice a trend that catchers are are taller these days and and there are more taller catchers as someone who is 6'3", 6'4", I will say it is very difficult to get into a crouch and keep that for an extended period of time. For me, that doesn't have anything to do with my height. It just has to do with my utter lack of flexibility or other athletic ability. Ed was born in Stewart, Florida, and raised in nearby Fort Pierce, Florida. That's in St. Lucie County on the eastern coast, referred to as the Treasure Coast north of Palm Beach, Miami, etc. And Fort Pierce natives include MLB catchers, Charles Johnson and Terry McGriff, and wonderful, terrific Mons Jr., who played in the mm. NFL and CFL. His son, wonderful, terrific Mons III, played minor league baseball. Two of the greatest names, wonderful, <laughs> terrific Mons. And John Hofteling, who was the creator of the Magic Fingers Vibrating Bed. And late in her life, Zora Neale Hurston, author of Their Eyes Are Watching God, lived her last years in Fort Pierce. Ed's parents, Bill and Jean, operated a print shop, and his brother, Tommy, went on to be a PGA golfer. He also had a sister named Debbie. Ed was a great all-around athlete. He won the local punt, pass, and kick competition six straight times. And at age 10, he won the regional competition, and that gave him a spot in the nationals in San Diego at the AFC Championship game. He finished fourth out of 13 participants. He's also a very good basketball player and a very good student, finishing third in his class at Fort Pierce Central High School. While in high school, he's a baseball star, pitching and catching. Only five players have been drafted from that high school. Only two of those made it to the big leagues, Ed and Michael Brantley. Brantley, current major leaguer, five-time all-star, currently leading the Fort Pierce High School alumni Wins above replacement standings, 32.9 to Ed's career, 0.1 wins above replacement. <laughs> Ed also played quarterback as a senior, which led to a shoulder injury that will pop up later in his career. That senior year of high school, Ed started wearing glasses, and this really helped him at the plate. He hit 342, and that impressed scout Andy Seminick, who recommended him to the Phillies. Seminick played catcher for the Phillies and Reds in the 40s, played for the WizKids Phillies team that won the National League pennant in 1950. He later coached in the minors, scouted, and was a catching instructor well into his 70s. And he passed away in 2004 at the age of 83. So Ed gets drafted in the fourth round by the Phillies, 1978. 
and starts out at Helena, Montana, and has a really great first year. 47 games, 283 average, 13 home runs. Yeah, he led this team in home runs and RBIs. He had an 882 OPS, and he was the team MVP on a team that also had Ryan Sandberg and 1987 American League MVP George Bell. But unfortunately, while that line in 1978 looks really good, 1979 is blank because he's on the disabled list. The high school football injury flared up, and the pain was so bad that it required shoulder surgery, and he sat out all of 1979. You know, you have a 19-year-old kid coming off a really good first year and then has to sit out all of 1979, and then in 1980, he injures his ankle, which required surgery as well. Oh, man, that is rough. He ends up in A-ball in 1980 at Spartanburg, and is splitting time at that point between first base and DH and continued that splitting time at Peninsula in the A League in 1981. He put up pretty good numbers. He made the Carolina League All-Star team, hit 303 with 10 home runs. He stayed at Peninsula in 1982, but quickly earned a promotion to AA Redding with a 329 average in 21 games. And that Redding team, David, was a really an all-star team of baseball greats. Well, as far as the 1988 Tops podcast is concerned, it has such legends as Steve Jeltz, Don Carmen, and Jay Baller. So this is really a hall of fa- a hall of fame team for our podcast and now add ed hearn so they get four of their of their stars are uh, 1988 tops podcast subjects ed played okay but he didn't really get a chance to catch on with the phillies as a catcher he only caught 10 games between a and double a in 1982 and he was released after that season which was a welcome relief to ed yeah he needed a fresh start since he wasn't going to make it further than double a He ends up signing on with the Mets and starts off back at A-level in Lynchburg. And this is his third different A-level team and a team that we've talked about on the Lenny Dykstra episode. Lenny stole 105 bases for this Lynchburg team and hit 358. They also had an 18-year-old Doc Gooden who went 18-4. and And that team won the Carolina League championship going 96-43. and Ed was solid in 91 games, hitting 272 and earned a short call-up to AA. 1984, he's in Jackson. He shares an apartment with future A's GM Billy Bean and a guy who would play a part in the 1986 World Series for the Red Sox, Calvin Schiraldi. Ed called them two of the messiest guys you'd ever want to meet. Ed cleaned the apartment, paid the bills, did the grocery shopping, and his roommates gave him a nickname, Ward Cleaver, after the (laughs) father from Leave it to Beaver, and that that nickname stuck with with Ed. <laughs> and he had a kind of a fatherly persona on this team. Yeah, I have I have to imagine that being called Ward Cleaver when you're playing for the Mets, it means you're standing out quite a bit. Or it's a very low bar. <laughs> True. <laughs> yep. When you're being compared to Lenny Dykstra. No doubt. So Jackson ends up going 83 and 53 that season, wins the Texas League, and Ed does great. 312 average, 11 home runs, and 86 games. So that's back to back minor league titles for Ed. So he gets to move up another station to AAA, Tidewater. He was one of the last cuts coming out of spring training. Again, 
Dykstra, Rick Aguilera, Sid Fernandez were on this team. All these guys who are going to make it to that 1986 Mets team. And his old friends, Chiraldi and Bill Bean, were also on, on Tidewater. Ed plays 112 games, hits 263. The team won the Governor's Cup, which is the International League Championship. That's three titles in a row for Ed at three different levels. After that season, his good friend Calvin Chiraldi was traded to the Red Sox. Ed was an usher at Calvin's wedding. And Matt, we like to talk about pranks. We haven't talked about pranks in a while. Yeah, it's been a while. And Hearn was a bit of a prankster. The night before Calvin Chiraldi's wedding, he painted the letters H-E on one shoe and L-P on the bottom of another shoe. So when Calvin kneeled at the altar, the crowd got a message. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure some people appreciated that, although the... The bride side of the crowd might not have appreciated it. Yes. And there were some other some other pranks here played on Chiraldi f- before his wedding. I think they stuffed a bunch of smelly things into the trunk of Calvin's car. Good friends, but unfortunately Calvin played for the Red Sox in the 86 World Series. And these two players were on different sides of that World Series victory. So heading into that 1986 season, the, the Mets had Gary Carter... And Barry Lyons was his backup, so Ed goes back to AAA Tidewater. He thought this might be his last chance to make it to the majors. Yeah, he felt like he had performed well enough in spring training, and he was disappointed to not make the team and thought maybe he was going to be stuck languishing in the minors forever. He was hitting 265 through 22 games when he finally got the call-up to the majors, and his first impression of the 1986 Mets, bad, bad people. (laughs) (laughs) descriptions of this team in the bad guys one jeff perlman's great book about the team include (laughs) drunk mean cocky arrogant obnoxious and i'm not just talking about lenny dykstra there are a lot of characters on this team and and ed is is heavily quoted in that book talking about some of his teammates and and his impressions of them and so into this team you have ward cleaver he's a relatively he seems like kind of a teetotaling rookie. And he walks into a locker room in New York City full of characters. Yeah, but he performs right away. His first game was May 17th. He goes two for three off Bob Welch with his parents in the stands. And it seems like a very auspicious start. But as a backup, he then would sit for six games, play a game, sit for five. And so his third game, he has two errors against the Giants. And for a guy who's coming up and maybe doesn't have, you know, has Gary Carter in front of him, you're not going to get a lot of playing time. Ed said, I've been through a lot to get to this point in my career, a lot of adversity. I know that if I face difficult times and get something out of it, I know I'm going to be a lot better for it. And that may be a little bit of foreshadowing for the rest of of Ed's career and, and the rest of Ed's life. So Ed ends up hitting his first big league home run on June 15th of 1986. And his teammates pushed him out of the dugout for a curtain call. His parents are again in the stands. He gives his dad the home run ball as a Father's Day gift. It's a perfect story. So through July, Ed was playing pretty well. He played in 20 games in intermittent playing time. He was hitting 302, had three home runs, and the Mets were 13-7 and in games that he played. Also in July was that famous brawl at Cooters in Houston. I'll encourage folks to revisit the Tim Tuffle episode for for more on Cooter's Bar in Houston. 
But Tim Tuffle, Rick Aguilera, Ron Darling, and Bob Ojeda got into a brawl. And Ed, while being one of the clean living players on this Mets team, uh, was not at Cooter's. He was called in for prank duty. (laughs) And he assisted Roger McDowell in decorating the lockers of those arrested players like prison cells. There is an interesting story about Ed himself. And maybe this says a little bit about Ed the man where some of his other teammates were getting into fights. Ed was out on a boat fishing in Long Island Sound, and he ran out of gas. So he's using his CB to call for help. He says, Mayday, I need help. My name is Ed Hearn. Mayday, Mayday. And the response from the other line is, Yeah, right. You're not Ed Hearn. If you're Ed Hearn, what are you hitting, and who's your third base coach? <laughs> and so he says 268 and Bud Harrelson and they say how many home runs and he says two an hour later the Coast Guard comes out to save him and they're rewarded with Ed's autograph I have serious questions about the safety protocols taken here by the Coast Guard David when someone is calling in a, in a distress call for help why are they asking his stats I don't know if I'm Ed Hearn. It, you know, was he saying his name expecting that somebody would know that that he is a, a celebrity? <laughs> he is a minor Met celebrity. It's it's a very good, it's a fun story, as as we'll see. Ed is a very good public speaker, and so perhaps there is some embellishment here. But <laughs> but he has some good stories, and and you know this Mets team was full of good stories. So this one is is a cute one rather than a disturbing one. I'm just glad that he got Bud Harrelson's name right. Uh, or else he might not have been rescued and the story would have ended there. Or what if the the people on the other end had an old newspaper and they're like, it says here you're hitting 302. We are not coming to save you. But luckily for Ed, he made it back to shore. He didn't have to swim back. And he was featured in the Let's Go Mets video, which I think we discussed in the Tim Tuffle episode. We did mention this briefly and I... I recall from the Tim Tuffle episode that we just made a mention of Joe Piscopo being involved, which immediately kind of soured my stomach and made me not want to engage in the video. But now in looking at it again, it has several heartwarming scenes, like four minutes long of, you know, kids trading baseball cards, all of the players from the Mets and other New York celebrities and other people just in general happiness about living in New York, playing baseball, and being associated with the Mets. And in this video, Ed Hearn is shown juggling baseballs and apples. And then while juggling, catches the apple, puts it in his mouth and continues juggling the baseballs, which is a very good trick. This is maybe Ed's biggest contribution to the Mets up to this point in July. (laughs) I, I, I appreciate this video. I think that we may have cut our chat on the Let's Go Mets video short in the in that episode because we were busy getting mesmerized <laughs> and I after getting right, mesmerized yes. we just said you know what that's 
we could we could follow up on this song in a later episode. I appreciated the kids with the heavy New York accents at the beginning of this. It's charming, very charming. Shortly after the video comes out in August, Gary Carter ends up injuring his thumb and Ed is called back into service. He plays in 17 games in August and the team is happy enough with his performance and it helps that the Mets were already 18 games up in the in the division by mid-August. So they they didn't mind having him around. And maybe that that helped Ed, not a lot of pressure. <laughs> Not to replace Gary Carter. Everybody knows the kid was unreplaceable. But later in that month, Ed did hit a home run off Fernando Valenzuela. That was his fourth career home run. And it would be the last of his season and the last home run of his career. So off the field, Ed meets his wife, Trisha in 1986 through teammate Randy Neiman. They end up marrying in 1987. But before that, we have the other big event of 1986, and that's the 86 series. Ed was on the playoff roster, but he didn't play in the playoffs or the World Series. And he was the only player on the roster to not make a single appearance in the postseason. He watched his friend Calvin Schiraldi implode in Game 6. And Ed was part of the team, gets a ring, and it's a huge season for a rookie. But maybe just a little unfortunate that he didn't get to make an appearance in the postseason. And that's an amazing run. Four straight years winning titles at four different levels. What a great, what a, just a great team that the Mets put together at the minor league level all the way up to the majors. And for the year, Ed played in 49 games. He had 265, four home runs, 10 RBIs, a decent rookie season. Yeah, and I would expect, David, that winning four titles in a row four straight years at four different levels of the minors and then the majors would make a perfect fun fact for this card but there's no fun fact on this card and i i'm i'm furious at that there's also no this way to the clubhouse and we see ed on the royals how did he get there from the mets it's a total mystery well, we luckily have done the research and, and find out that on March 27th, 1987, Hearn was traded to the Kansas City Royals with reliever Rick Anderson and minor league pitcher Mauro Gozzo. In exchange for a young pitcher named David Cohn and a minor league outfielder, Chris Jellick. Unfortunately for our protagonist, David Cohn was really the only player involved in this trade to have a significant major league career. And it puts Ed as a little bit of a footnote that he was part of this trade that the Royals gave up a guy who would become one of the best pitchers of the 90s in David Cohn. But that brings Ed to Kansas City and and gives us this beautiful card in royal blue. Absolutely. But the last line of the card only has six games in it. Ed was expected to start as catcher for this 1987 Royals team. Kansas City traded Jim Sundberg prior to the season, and Ed starts strong, hitting 294 in those six games. He started feeling some shoulder pain, and then on April 18th, he has the highest of highs and maybe the lowest of lows in one day. Visiting the Yankees, he's given his World Series ring, and then in the game, he gets into a collision at the plate with Dave Winfield. After that, the pain that he started to feel was too much to, to continue playing. He had a partial rotator cuff tear, which required a major surgery. He rehabbed for the rest of the 87 season and most of the 88 season. He tried to make a a comeback 
1988, he had a short minor league stint playing 17 games and hitting 304 and did make it back to the big leagues for seven games, his last seven games in the majors, hitting only 222. In 1989 and 1990, he's still trying to make it, having good runs at AAA Omaha. And after a minor league deal with Cleveland, he did well at AA and AAA, but never made it back to the majors. It seemed like Ed just never got the time to get back into major league shape. And that call up to the majors just never came again. He failed to sign a deal with an MLB team in 1991, and he decided to call it quits. So closing the book on Ed Hearn's career, 62 games in the majors with a 263 average and four home runs. How about in retirement? Initially, Ed started selling insurance in Overland Park, Kansas, and he starts out a business career. I mean, he's going to move on from, from that major league career. You know, Ed wasn't, he wasn't wealthy. In his last season in the majors, he made $80,000, made $200-ish thousand in, in his major league career. So he didn't retire a millionaire from, from professional sports. And so he had to go get an, another job. And unfortunately, he experienced health issues very shortly after retirement. In July 1991, he was diagnosed with focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, which required dialysis and ultimately a kidney transplant. He also suffered from another kidney disorder that made it difficult for him to fight infections and sleep apnea. So he's tired, he's sick, and then later he was diagnosed with skin cancer. Oh, he man. Had multiple, multiple serious health issues that all compounded upon each other. He had the first of three kidney transplants in 1992, 25 surgeries, three dozen carcinomas, and courses of radiation. He's taking up to 50 pills a day, spending $40,000 a year on medication, and $3,000 per month on IV treatments. He's not well. Physically, he had incurable diseases, and his health woes just kept compounding, and that affected his mental health. At his lowest point, after his kidney transplant, Ed took a gun to his basement. He wrote a suicide note, and then he thought better of it. He thought about his wife, and Ed was a man of faith, and he felt that God was reaching out to him. And so he decided to keep going. In 1994, a son, Cody Carter Hearn, was born his middle name given after Ed's Mets teammate. And Ed found a renewed purpose around this time, speaking to the Rotary Club. He would tell his story, and Rotarians encouraged him to share his story with more people. Ed became a renowned motivational speaker, sharing his story with corporate clients, churches, and schools. In 2002, Ed had his, to date, his last kidney transplant, and it was successful. He wrote a book called Conquering Life's Curves, Baseball Battles, and Beyond. He met his kidney donor's family on Oprah. And he works with the Nefcure Foundation, which funds research into kidney diseases, some of which Ed has endured. In 2011, Ed's son Cody was diagnosed with lymphoma. That lymphoma is in full remission, and Cody is now in his 20s. But Ed continues to support causes that help children with with all sorts of difficulties, especially in the Kansas City area where he lives. He has a foundation called the Bottom of the Ninth Foundation that provides role models for, for kids and uses Ed's story to help inspire them. So David, after looking into Ed's story, we, you know, we started out just saying, here's a guy who's just really tall. And 
I didn't know anything else about him. I wasn't a Mets fan, and he really only had the one season where he played a significant number of games. But now what do we think after looking deeper into his story? I was in the same boat. I remembered this card because I liked the colors on it. I liked <laughs> I liked the Royals uniforms, and, and this one has a lot of blue. It's just a very striking look. Ed has had a pretty amazing life from World Series champion, career-ending injury, debilitating illness after debilitating illness, and then for him and his son to both be fighting these health battles at the same time, it must have been overwhelming. He wasn't a wealthy man. The cost of medication must have been just astronomical. And there were times when Ed just couldn't get out of bed. And to go from being this big catcher, this is an athlete, and to go from that to being unable to, to leave your bed must have been disheartening and, and depressing. His medication may have also led to some of those mood swings and then add in compounding illnesses and, and family obligations and family illnesses. It must be terribly difficult. And he's taken that and he's turned it into something positive. He seems to be doing well health-wise. And according to Ed, he's touched more lives in 30 years of struggle than if he had played 10 in the major leagues. His message is to stay in the batter's box and keep swinging. And because we addressed mental health and suicide, I think it's, it's worth mentioning that if you need help, call 1-800-273-8255, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. What Ed has done to stick with it after going through what must have felt like rock bottom several times. It's really a heck of a story. Ed describes it as going from the penthouse to the outhouse and back to the penthouse. And so he's, he's experienced the lowest of the lows and the highest of the highs. And I hope that he remains in good health and that he continues to serve as a, as a positive role model for kids. Good job, Ed. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, David, uh, for that message. And thank you to you at home for listening. If Billy Bean has ever given you an unfortunate nickname, we would love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.